Welcome to Grails, a podcast by Alton Insights. My name is John Tunger, and on this episode, I am joined by Masha Golovina. She's the head of acquisitions at Masterworks. And so finally, finally, I got someone to give us a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to actually participate in a high-end auction. It's her team's responsibility to work with the research team and go and acquire the pieces of art that they list on their website. And so a ton of really interesting stuff from her angle and the financials behind spending Masterworks war chest amount of money that they use to go and buy paintings that are worth millions of dollars. Now, before we get started, uh, I usually talk about at Alton Insights on Twitter, where we use that to talk about all these different type of assets that are hitting the marketplaces, but also if you want to talk directly uh, with our Grails team, you can follow us at Alton Grails, A-L-T-A-N Grails, to stay in the know with what's going on uh, on the podcast and looking at assets from our perspective. So an interview with Masha, let's get started. I kind of grew up appreciating art, uh, you know, really terrible artist myself, but I loved going to museums um, when we would take field trips to the SF MoMA. I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, you had these tour guides and it just felt like story time with pictures and it was the coolest. And then I really took my first economics class in high school. And that was cool because it's a social science that has rules. Um, and models that you build around it that explain human behavior. And I thought that was just super neat. And so when I went to college, I really couldn't pick between the two. I double majored. And I've been kind of following that intersection ever since. Um, I, you know, took a step back I, uh, or away, I would say, from the art markets. I worked for Citigroup for a little over three years um, after I got my master's in economics. And then I decided that it felt like uh, I really wanted to pursue something in the arts again, but kind of in this art business intersection. And so I, I worked for Christie's for uh, just over four years. And then I, you know, Masterworks uh, for me is a little bit of a needle in a haystack. It was a startup that was interested in uh, art investing. And I just really, um, it was a tough decision to leave Christie's because you, when you leave a big company for a startup, there's some inherent risk, but I just really believed yeah. in the vision of our founder, Scott Lynn, and he is, you know, a really uh, interesting collector and a, an incredibly talented startup founder. And, you know, you hear the word entrepreneur thrown around a lot, but, you know, someone like Scott has built a number of successful companies and it's just, you realize that you won't get another, another opportunity to be a part of something like this. And what did you do at Christie's um, that eventually put you on Scott's radar? So at Christie's, I worked in the department. It was, it's called the commercial office. It's part of the chairman's group. And we uh, in the commercial office oversaw the really high value deals and transactions. So anything that requires kind of your non-run-of-the-mill, non-standard terms. And so mm -hmm. it is still, you know, it's... It's definitely, it isn't a specialist department where all you think about is the art. It gave me the opportunity to think about the art, but also kind of the financial underpinning behind um, how auction houses structure their deals with the sellers and how uh, we can think about bidding. And kind of, I started doing some very rudimentary 
analytics there to kind of show how um, kind of bidding affects the final outcome in prices. And so I think, uh, you know, I very randomly found the position at Masterworks. It was through a LinkedIn post. Wow. And I said, hey, you know, I'm not sure what this company is doing, but I'd like to find out more. And lo and behold, it turned out that a collector was running it. And that's why I just, you know, I think it's a, a mix of kind of luck and, you know, in terms of being in the right place at the right time, but also having built the skill set that would make me the right fit um, to work on acquisitions for the company. I'm imagining being Scott and all of a sudden from a LinkedIn post, you have someone that's like, oh yeah, I actually worked on, um, you know, figuring out a very unique business structuring, finance structuring of art, right? And it's like, <laughs> how unique does it get from taking art and fractionalizing it? And that coming in from a LinkedIn post being like, wow, that is, uh, I think that's probably more lucky for him on that side, but uh, that's like awesome. <laughs> Sweet of you to say, I like to think it worked out for um, everybody involved. Okay. So I've been asking this question for a lot of people who um, are kind of in your acquisitions world. And usually it's more around like rare pieces of sports memorabilia or things like that. And I, and I, people usually say it happens in private transactions. And so I haven't really gotten an answer that I'm like, Oh man, but I seem so fascinated by the auction process, the bidding mm -hmm. process, right? Like this seems like the, the most highbrow you go in, it's a competition, like who's going to win. What was your first auction? Like you're taking me uh, down, a, down a, a trip down memory lane here, actually. So I interned for Sotheby's in college and I interned in the San Francisco office. And then I happened to be traveling to London and they were going and I'm uh, this is I promise you relevant to the story, but I'm Russian <laughs> and my family's always been super into Russian art. And those were actually the first museums I grew up going to. Cool. And so I happened to be traveling to London um, and this would have been, I want to say, like 2006, 2007. Um, and so they, Sotheby's were, was having their first Russian evening sale, which um, if you can't picture what goes into that, a lot of Fabergé eggs um, and, you know, paintings by the Russian masters, which are probably yeah. not names that, you know, anyone listening to the podcast would recognize. So I'll spare you that. And so I was kind of an intern. I was kind of walked in really doe-eyed and they're like, do you want to help with the auction phone bid? I was like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> um, and so I just kind of stood and watched it from the sidelines and it was really cool to watch. Um, and then kind of as a uh, kind of two seconds on the Russian art market when kind of oil prices started going, you know, taking a, taking a dip and then the general kind of global economy took a dip, you know, Russian art prices suffered quite a bit, haven't come back since. So that was one of the first and one of the few and one of the only Russian evening sales that happened. Um, wow. And if, for those of you not familiar with the structure of auction sales, day sales um, have some high value property up to about a million dollars, sometimes more. Evening sales are the ones that you read about and you hear about on the news uh -oh. that have those... you. You know, hundred a hundred million dollar Picasso. You know that's being sold in the evening sale. That last Da Vinci, you know that's a that's an evening sale type lot. So really, those are the ones that you need some sort of ticket. And the auction house, um, you know, really has a limited number of people that can attend those. And those are the more uh, social and kind of highbrow events. 
And then, you know, there are auctions for everything. What most people don't realize and that I realized working for an auction house is that if you go to the gal- the auction house galleries every week, you'll see different property. You'll see everything from, you know, a super high value stamp to uh, American paintings to kind of decorative arts and like cool sofas and almost estate wow. sale like property. And so some of it is really highbrow and you'll get that museum quality piece. And then you also have things that are actually, you know, potentially rather affordable, especially, you know, for people who are super interested in investing, there are things that you can buy that, you know, aren't, you know, easily that are easily under $10,000 that appear at auctions. You just don't realize that that's the case because that's not what makes the headlines. Yeah. This is awesome. I've been waiting for the behind the scenes look (laughs) at auction houses for so long. Okay. So that let's go back to the first, that Russian auction. Do you say that was a phone um, one or was that like in person? You saw like people doing flipping the little signs and are like, so, so everything now is uh, these days is hybrid uh, in the sense that there are people who are sitting in the room who really like bidding in person. There are always the representatives of the auction house who have phone lines that call their clients from around the world or clients that just don't want to be seen in person um, bidding on a specific work. And they call and they bid over the phone and they basically raise their hand on behalf of the person, whoever's on the other line, their client as our proxy. Hmm. Um, And then when I went to London and now actually there's an online component, so you can actually just click and bid online. um, And more and more people are doing that. Although I'd say for the higher value lots, that's still, you know, paintings or works over a million dollars, that's still a bit of an anomaly. Um, You know, back in 2007, 2008, you didn't have the online component at all. Um, And so when I went, they asked if I, because I was, you know, an intern for Sotheby's, they asked if I could help, you know, take phone bids. And I had no idea how to do that. (laughs) Um, So I just politely declined and stood, stood by the sidelines and watched people bid on the room and bid on bid um, over the phone. Um, But then when I actually worked at an auction house full time, I went through the training and, you know, your first two are incredibly, uh, the first two times that you bid for somebody on the phone and you have somebody on the other line spending um, probably more money than I I make in a year. um, (laughs) It is a bit nerve wracking because you don't want to mess this up. Um, But like anything else, you just get used to it. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and if it's a bigger lot, you know, your bid will be a hundred thousand dollars. So it kind of, it really, it really just depends on what the value of the property is and, uh, where kind of the, how the auctioneer is pacing everything, how quickly you'll end up kind of jumping, uh, increments. So they call those bidding denominations increments. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for masterworks, um, Mm -hmm. for a lot of these big, uh, paintings a lot of them are i know you like have relationships where you maybe you skip the whole auction process but if it does go to auction mm-hmm. are you the person that is having are you, are you the one there holding up the sign um so, is it holding up a sign tell me i mean is that just in the movies in a show like but is that you um so i i've gone to bid in person once but i actually generally prefer being on the phone because that gives me kind of the space to think. An auction is actually a very mm-hmm. hectic environment. Okay. So if we're trying to think strategically and I'm trying to look, I think we're, you know, Masterworks is a very data-driven company. 
Um, and so if I'm trying to think about kind of, let's say, you know, another work by the same artists that were interested in so sold earlier in the sale and either did way worse or way better than expected, I need the space to kind of uh, quickly reevaluate where we think the market value of whatever we're interested in is. And that's a very hard thing to do in an environment that's, you know, where you do hear, you know, even for lots we're not bidding on, like going, you know, going once, going twice, uh, people yelling out bids, all of that. Yeah. So now, especially with the pandemic uh, providing the impetus for auction houses to really accelerate their uh, digital offerings, let's call it, it's, you know, it's a much easier exercise to just bid from home. So I'll bid from home um, on the phone with somebody I work with um, at the auction houses, depending on who's available to take bids at any yeah. given point in time. And so, yeah. And you said for the higher level stuff, it's, um, it's, I mean, it's gotta be a, a smaller room, right? So do you see a lot of the typical same people and you know, oh man, we're bidding against XYZ collector over here. Like, man, they always love running the price up on us. Like is that, <laughs> do all those dynamics come into play? So, so we really haven't had this season in-person auctions are coming back. In fact, uh, there's one tonight. Oh, cool. Um, the first one of the fall season in New York is happening tonight at Christie's. And, um, by the time this podcast airs, it probably will have already happened, but you know, no November 9th basically kicks off the big auction season in New York and it happens for two weeks, but these are the first really in-person auctions in New York that are happening in the last two years. So it's hard to say who's going to come in person and who won't. Mm -hmm. um, I think certainly some people do prefer to bid in person. Um, and, you know, every once in a while when you're when you know who's kind of you can get a sense of who's bidding on what. But it's it's really hard to tell because most of the time these days people bid over the phone with an auction house specialist. So yeah. when you sit in the room in an evening sale, there's a you know, the there's a surprise element of somebody actually bidding in the room but that i would say happens like 10 percent of the time and the rest of the time um it's really anonymized through the phone bidding process yeah last question on the auction front it's just you've been the first person to actually have ask, ask know, as many ask profit. away ask away <laughs> uh do you have a like a story of any um pieces of art that are on the platform right now right we're like and, and i'm just imagining this whole thing like like I've been on eBay, right? That's the extent of my bidding. But even there, eBay, like my heart is going, blood is pumping, like, oh man, come on. And then when you win, it's just got to be amazing. Do you have a, a, any story of any of the pieces that are on the platform of like, oh man, so, we, we weren't sure if we got it, we got it, like something like that? Yeah. So I, I mean, it's a little bit difficult for me to comment on specific ones just because we're not, I'm not allowed to discuss specific That's offerings. Fair. But That's yeah, there are definitely, I would say broadly speaking, there are a few works on the platform that we've won at auction. I was like, wow, I can't believe we just won this. And I think, <laughs> and I'm certain that somebody out there has kind of bitters, like a under bitters remorse or um, kind of a feeling like, oops, you know, they missed this opportunity. And on the flip side, you know, there are things that we've been on that we haven't won where a season goes by and you just think, dang, we really should have gone higher. But, you know, the best you can do is make decisions with the information you have at that given point in time. Um, yeah. And some of them, even though you're prepping and researching for, you know, weeks or in a, a few cases, months beforehand, you know, it really comes down to a split second decision. So, 
it's, uh, you know, obviously it gets easier the more experience you have. So going into my, I want to say this is my seventh season with Masterworks, um, it's, you know, it gets easier. Yeah. Uh, I read in another interview um, where you said that you guys had a $300 million uh, basically like acquisitions budget for 2021. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2021 coming to a close here. Is that, uh, were, were you guys able to spend a lot of that $300 million I, budget? I, I can't tell you exactly where we'll land, but I know we're going to be it well in excess of 300. Wow. Um, we're really excited about how the business is going and we've, you know, we've made some really great acquisitions and we're excited to continue doing so. What does that do to a market? Um, when all of a sudden such a big buyer as you're, you know, cause I'm sure there's not a ton of people who are pouring that much money into, you know, specifically like, Hey, we're just buying up, buying up. What does that do for the art market as a whole? In my mind, just hearing that I'm like, does that inflate prices because you guys are a big acquisition company there or how does that work? So we try to stay mindful of not, you know, being the one to move a given market. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that, you know, the way that you mark to market in, our world is by actually through auction. Um, and we buy quite a bit privately. And so, you know, we're probably not going to be the ones, uh, you know, chasing record breaking property bidding on a, you know, hundred million dollar Basquiat. Um, we don't think of ourselves as kind of market makers in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're, you know, we're active and we, and we're judicious. And so I, I like to think that we're kind of, we're not trying to define a market. We're really just trying to play into it yeah. um, and define the right opportunities for the platform. And we buy very differently from collectors. So I think that, um, you know, we're not, we're not, and not that collectors only go after hot markets, but specifically masterworks. We don't only focus on the markets that are kind of hot today. So we're not the ones making the markets for young artists. Um, We're focused on blue chip established, you know, artworks that have established track records at auctions, um, artists that have had good price appreciation over the last 10 to 30 years. But we're not the ones kind of running up prices on, um, you know, artists that, you know, are appearing for the first, second time at auctions. So it's I think it's it's something that we're mindful of, um, but we're not, you know because we're not spending that entire budget at auction. I think, um, I think we're able to kind of try and be a little more under the radar. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And with a pretty big fundraise here uh, in the last couple of months, is that a lot of that plans just hit, we're going to keep acquiring, you know, as you guys really set what assets are on the platform. So the, you know, really exciting, uh, as you pointed out, yes, we had a really exciting Series A. We raised a hundred million dollars. I think for me personally, the most exciting thing is that there are some really um, amazing collectors who run investment businesses who uh, invested in Masterworks and believe in what mm. we're doing and kind of see the value in bringing the art market to you know. Right now, there are about a quarter of a million people signed up at the, on the platform. Um, people have never you know spent money in the art market before. Really felt that it was intimidating. Um, we're like their one-stop shop, almost like an, I like to think of it as almost like an art advisor. Like we do right. everything for you. We ship, we insure um, everything else. So most of the uh, fundraising money is actually going to, I believe, just continuing to grow our business. 
Mm. Um, you know, we've, my team has grown from three to eight in the last two months. So that's, you know, significant. And we're continuing our, um, kind of marketing efforts and, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there are some, you know, going to be some really great things coming out of Masterworks in the next couple months. Yeah. Well, congrats. That's really exciting. Um, thank you. Thank you for, so as I'm looking at the platform right now, the way a lot of pieces of art uh, grow in value is you do have an ability for like secondary trading. Um, you guys are very firm and Scott talked about this when he came on, um, that it's like a long-term play. So how it fits in your portfolio mm-hmm. is invest for, you know, think of this minimum seven years plus. Right. Um, right. So it seems like the stage of your guys' business where you're at is, so you're acquiring a lot of these pieces of art and are you hoping that, Hey, seven, eight, nine, 10 years from now, a lot of like people come and acquire these pieces of art off of your platform. Um, cause if I'm coming on, maybe one of my worries is, wow, I'm going to be holding this thing for seven plus years. But right now there's only been like one acquisition because you guys are still kind of newer or a couple acquisitions. Um, deaccession. The word yeah. you're looking for is deaccession. So yeah. So how does, how does that work? So, um, we, we want to be really thoughtful about deaccessioning paintings and certainly, you know, we are internally discussing strategy for that. I can't give you a definitive answer, um, at the moment, but the whole reason that the secondary, uh, mark, uh, the bulletin board structure, the secondary trading, you know, uh, for shares exists on our platform is specifically so that, you know, investors who, perhaps uh, need some additional liquidity, um, they can actually just go and use use that instead of waiting for an exit. Right. Um, and so I think that is just a really great service that we provide to investors. But in terms of, yes, it, you know, the company's only been around for um, four, four and a half years. So certainly there will be more exits coming um, soon-ish, but Nothing, um, nothing that I can announce yet. I think a lot of our listeners uh, probably would like a refresh on the Bolton board uh, structure of how you guys do it, because that's different than some of the other companies in the space. Could you explain that? So the bulletin board on our uh, website, there's just there's a on the top right in the menu, you can click on trading. Mm -hmm. And so then you can see where individuals who own shares have listed their shares and the prices and individuals who um, want to buy shares in a specific work have listed what their buy price is. And so we can't actually match them up, but we can allow people to organically um, themselves negotiate and buy shares amongst each other. And Masterworks just executes those trades. Yep. Gotcha. So it's kind of like the coffee shop Bolton board, like, Hey, this is yeah, what I'm trying to put right there. It's literally like that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, Masterworks doesn't take a fee on it or anything. It's just purely a service we provide to our awesome. investors. Okay. Let's uh, take a couple steps back. Head of acquisitions, right? You're the one um, not just bidding on the art like we've been talking about, but your team is also going out and looking at what pieces you should go after, right? Uh, what goes into that decision-making process of like this piece versus that piece? That's a, that's a great question. So it all really starts with our research team. And so the research team um, focuses on what artists markets are interesting. Hmm. And so, and that's more of, you know, a theoretical, if we 
oh, you know, if we could buy anything in the world, who would we want to buy something by, right? And then when it comes to um, our CFO, I love the way he puts this, where more of the in-house trading desk, we actually go, once you have the research team um, strategically identifies kind of which artists, we actually go out and see, well, is there anything available by this artist? Mm. And there are a couple artists who we've been, you know, tracking for like three, four years where we haven't been able to find a single painting by, right? Wow. So that's, you know, there, there are often these situations where, you know, the supply is so short, even if we think that it's a good market to be in, well, you know, good luck finding something there, right? And so in other situations, there is an abundance of work, right? And so, you know, artists that are more prolific, um, you know, names that come to mind are, you know, like Pablo Picasso um, and George Kondo and Yaya Kusama. And so with artists that have a larger body of work and kind of the liquidity is more apparent there um, because we are offered, you know, we go out, we talk to galleries, auction houses, private collectors, um, private dealers, advisors. And so we just try to see as much property as possible. And so from what we see, we start saying, okay, this is a work from a specific series. Um, I'll use Picasso as an example, just because the man created art for, um, <laughs> you know, it feels like almost a hundred years. It was short of that, but right. you know, there are so many identifiable series. He had his muses, um, which are, you know, the women that influenced um, and were basically his uh, models and, you know, you can think of Dora Maar, Marie Therese, um, Jacqueline, and you can actually just, you know, we start studying what is the market for, you know, one of these works. What is the market for a different, a portrait of a different muse? Um, if we look later, what is the market for his Musketeer series? Um, and so then we can start kind of breaking down the artist's greater body of work into submarkets, and then from there. Um, once we've identified kind of which submarkets we like, we just, let's say we were offered hypothetically like 20 portraits and we say, okay, what's the best portrait at the best price? And then we um, go through our, you know, I'd say it's a pretty rigorous due diligence process um, that actually leads us to, and contracting process that actually leads us to acquire the painting, you know, up to the point where it ships and right. lands at our storage facility. Wow. Yeah. Do you, and do you guys try to like evenly distribute your portfolio of art from this era or, you know, this style, or is it kind of just like based off what comes to market? Um, so we definitely try to be thoughtful about, uh, what we're buying and kind of how we're balancing the portfolio. And so I will say that, um, you know, our, Artist, we have an artist list that's kind of broadly speaking, um, it's about 55 to 60 artists and it kind of switches depending on what we've just acquired. Um, right. And so within those artists, you know, we have everything from, uh, you know, impressionist and modern. So, you know, Picasso, Monet to, well, for us, younger artists aren't what are considered to be young young artists in the market, but, you know, like Cecily Brown, George Kondo, artists that are yeah. still living, still producing work Modern. and everything in the middle, right? Basquiat, Warhol. We also have the German um, post-war abstractionists, you know, like Gunther Ucker, um, Albert Olin. We have 
American abstract expressionists like Joan Mitchell. Um, we have, you know, minimalism, Agnes Martin. So, and we also have Chinese modernists like Zhao Wuqi and Chu Chun. So we have really diversified in a way that an individual collector, you know, I would right. be hard pressed to find a collector that's bought, you know, Barkley Hendrix next to Zhao Wuqi. Um, so I think from that perspective, we've just achieved a level of diversification that you just don't see in um, private portfolios, just because people who collect art often want to tell a story um, or they're interested right. in some very specific area of the mar art market. And we've kind of just been looking um, as broadly as possible to identify the artists that we want to be investing in. Yeah. And for those listening, if you haven't listened to the Scott interview, so much of what they go after are like blue chip art. So that's why a modern yeah, collector wouldn't just go, I'm going for all the blue chip art, right? <laughs> Where like the other VC strategy is like, oh, I'm going to go invest in all these up and coming artists. Right. Uh, that's not masterworks. Which they is more of a, the... right. If you're investing in up and coming artists that are maybe right now selling for like 10K, that's a numbers game. You need to invest in a million of them and, ho of them and hope that one goes and becomes like the next Right. Thing, like big, big thing. Whereas we're really looking for, um, you know, artists, like you said, blue chip artists. Um, generally speaking, we buy in the price range of one to $20 million. So by the time an artist hits a million dollars, you're really kind of in the top. I wouldn't even say 1%. I would say like 1% of 1%. Wow. Um, you know, there are thousands of artists. I want to say we have um, our research team has identified about 6,000 artists that have, you know, ever appeared at auction. And we're really focusing on a super, super tiny segment of that. The behind the scenes look is exactly what we're looking for here at Grails. Is there anything else that you'd want awesome. to tell the people uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, what you guys are working on, what your team's working on? I think you've got all the highlights. We're super excited to see, um, you know, track the auctions uh, over the next two weeks. And, you know, for me, this is like my Super Bowl. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, there's a, just an auction tonight. Well, that's one of the first tonight, back in person. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining the podcast on uh, the morning of your Super Bowl. That means a lot. I feel like I should end this right here with like the succession intro music. Um, <laughs> and we're out. <laughs> <laughs>